We're putting the band back together. You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a philosophical, critical, confessional, interstitial, theological, and always delectable conversation between Christian intellectuals. Your hosts are three Christian college professors, Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. Welcome all to yet another episode and yet another season of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is the beginning of our sixth. Is that is that is that it? Is that right? Sixth season? Seventh. Seventh? Odd okay. In the fall, all right. Even in the spring. Ah, uh, oh, right, 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 right. Okay, our seventh season. Man, how time flies. Of the Christian Humanist Podcast, uh, I'm going to be your host this week. I'm David Grubbs, professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas, uh, welcoming all of our very patient listeners back uh, as we get started again. Uh, it's time for uh, time for classes and books and you know teachers' dirty looks and all the rest of that, which means it's also time for us to start recording again. Um, with me in this episode, like in so many, many, many of the others, I'm actually starting to feel nostalgic, guys, is uh, Michael Farmer, uh, professor of English, or assistant professor? I can't even remember what your title is, Michael. I'm an assistant professor. You are the professor. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. I am the professor. Assistant professor of English at Crown College in, is it not St. Bonifacius anymore? No, we're still in St. Bonifacius. I'm not sure when the... Um the the redistricting takes place. All right. Well, I'm going to milk that cow as long as I possibly can. In the amazingly named St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. I trust things are well there, sir. Uh, they're pretty good, except it is going to be 95 degrees today, and the room I teach in in the afternoon doesn't have air conditioning. So. Ooh. Oh, that's great. That's oh, great. have I ever mentioned that I teach in a full suit? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, I may have to get that dry cleaned tonight. Yeah, I... I... I mean, I, I would suggest that you change that habit for this occasion, but it's, yeah. like, it's like seeing Batman without his mask. <laughs> if that's your thing, bro. All right. Um, the one making helpful suggestions is Nathan Gilmore, assistant professor of English. Dr. Nathan Gilmore, assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you this fine morning, Nathan? I am doing well. I'm actually uh, about to finish up my third week of classes here in Georgia. We uh, start earlier and end mm. earlier. Uh, so, you know, as I've read, uh, David, your posts and Michael's posts about starting up the school year, I am collecting my first round of freshman composition papers. So, <laughs> Eek. I don't know which I don't know. Wh- wh- I don't I don't know whether I want to trade places or not. Um yeah. Right now you don't, but you will at the end of the semester. <laughs> yes, yes, when December 8th rolls around and all my grades are in and I've got a month to decompress before the spring starts up. Mm. December 8th. Yeah, I believe that's the day of my last final. Holy cow. Uh, I'm hating right now. <laughs> 
Oh, and I've got to be back the second because we have a January short term. Oh yes, I think we I think we and our listeners remember your J term last semester. Yes, last yes. The, the, uh, so the, the, so the, listeners look look forward to some point one episodes because J term kicks David's butt. Either that, yeah, I, either look forward to point one episodes or episodes of David just screaming nonsense at the top of his lungs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't I I don't know I don't know next J term might not be. I well, <laughs> I'm teaching creative writing in the J term, and Ooh. I've never taught creative writing before. But doggies it could be fun, right? That could be fun. You keep that sunny attitude, David. Uh, I think it was a little more querulous than sunny. <laughs> I, I have I have a friend who's from Chicago, and every year he tells me that the Cubs are going to win it this year. <laughs> I, I don't know what made me think of that, David, but. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's non sequitur. All right. Anyway, uh, that's us. We're back and we're ready to rock. Uh, Before we rock, however, there is prolegomena. Um, During the summer. Wasn't that an ACDC album, David? Prolegomena to rock? (laughs) It should be. (laughs) Or maybe an introduction to an ACDC album Um, written by some, you know, hooded head. In the uh, uh, great academe, Prologamana um, Rock. <laughs> I just, I, I just imagined Emmanuel Kant wearing the uh, the, the Catholic schoolboy shorts. Yeah, well, whatever does it for you. Um, yeah, feedback from listeners kind of piles up during the summer, so I don't know if we're going to be able to catch all of you. Um, we actually had a sort of a special point one episode to address some of that, but uh, you want to hit some 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 high points of listener feedback, guys? Sure. Uh, as David mentioned, uh, episode 70, 78.01 was me just addressing listener feedback. So if you want to listen to that brief episode, I tried to catch everyone. Things that have come in since then. Uh, first of all, we got an email from Jonathan R. Jonathan, I'm not going to try to mispronounce your name. Uh, but you know who you are. Uh, Jonathan asks us, uh, since we did an episode on the end of the world and we did a book, a, a an episode on Desert Island books, uh, why not mix those up and do an apocalyptic book list? In other words, if civilization destroys itself Mad Max style, uh, what brief list of books should be in the mon- monastic Mad Max library? I'm paraphrasing Jonathan, of course, but that's how I prefer to imagine it. Uh, Jonathan, that might be an episode in the future. And in fact, that might be one of those end of the semester, uh, wrapping things up for a season sort of episodes. What do you guys think? Sound like a good idea? That does sound fun. I think I would have a hard time differentiating it between, between that and the, uh, desert Island ones, but I'm game. If you guys are. Sounds like a winner. Cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm done with it. Michael, why don't you hit us with another listener email we've gotten? Yeah, let me pull it up. Of course, I'm not prepared. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, um, I got an email from my friend Ford, the surfing violinist. You know, we talk about him from time to time. He says, uh, have you, Nathan and David, ever talked about Thomas Hobbes on CHP? I'm curious to know why Hobbes used Leviathan as his beast of choice to typify the type of government needed at that time. Does David have much experience with Leviathan, or have you read it? 
Right. And I actually did a little bit of preliminary research on that. And the Hebrew word that gets translated Leviathan in Job doesn't have those consonant sounds. So uh, that is a native Greek word. Uh, I think it also might deserve an episode at some point. I would think so. I, I think I could briefly, briefly answer his question. Oh. Um, Hobbes chose Leviathan because there had been no Godzilla movies made yet. <laughs> <laughs> well played, sir. <laughs> we also got an email from someone named K Motor. I'm not sure that's his real name. He says, I understand that you guys are usually giving the Protestant view of Christianity, but this year is the 50th anniversary of the Second Vatican Council, which profoundly changed half of Christianity overnight. And being the big Reformation movement that it was, it is being silently swept under the rug by the current Holy See. I would uh, love to hear your thoughts on it if any of you know or have the appetite to talk about it. Wow, that would be a stretch for me. me uh, I would have to dust off my seminary church history. Uh but, hey, let's not rule anything out. Mm. I think I actually have the Vatican II documents. Oh, I, I mean, they're available it. on the web. Yeah, well, I, I, I think I actually have a bound copy of those. Ooh. Um, my, uh, I had a great aunt who, uh, well, who was a nun, and she collected things like that. And I inherited a good bit of it when she mm. passed away. Huh. Maybe I should read it. <laughs> so, so I don't know if we, if uh, K Motor will get the <laughs> will get the Vatican II episode, but maybe. I mean, it, I, I think I think that is a little bit outside of our area of expertise, certainly. Well, <laughs> when has that ever stopped? Us? Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. Now, what what he didn't tell you, uh, Michael, is that actually back in the early '90s, he and I were a rap duo. Uh, Mad Dog Gilmore and DJ K Motor <laughs> recorded a couple albums, you know, never really made it on MTV. So, you know, went to the academic world. Ladies and gentlemen, I have tried to get Nathan Gilmore to rap on this podcast <laughs> for six seasons <laughs> to no avail. Let the letters flow in. Maybe, maybe if, uh, maybe if the, uh, maybe if the listeners demand it, Nathan will favor us with one of his raps. Hmm. <laughs> It has to include the word prolegomena. Oh, it'll happen. <laughs> awesome. Well, I wanted to uh, mention mention to uh, on the our Facebook page, which, by the way, visit our Facebook page, like it even. Yes, we're um, 145 likes, and we'd like to have 145 more. Yep, and then it will be. Oh, I can't. 290. Likes, yeah. Anyway, um, our friend and listener Matthew Block, uh, aka Captain Thin, uh, posted a link. Um, I think it was last week to a lecture by Dr. David Jeffrey on uh, the role of scripture in the development of humanity's education. Is that, is that correct, mm -hmm. Nathan? Mm -hmm. um, you you were familiar with Jeffrey? What? Um, yes, yes. I, I have a uh, a friend uh, whom I've only ever talked to online, but who is now dating a good friend of mine from college, which is a bizarre situation, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> it's like these two worlds of mine that aren't supposed to talk to each other are now in a relationship. Did you, but, did you, uh, did you set them up, Nathan? 
No, actually, I didn't. But each of them contacted me independently asking about the other, which, you know, I, I felt, you know, very yenta. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, happens occasionally to me. But that's another episode. Uh, but uh, she uh, did her PhD. No, strike that. Did she do her PhD at Baylor? Yeah, she did. She did. I, I always forget where people did their undergrad and where people did their PhD. Uh, but she did her PhD at Baylor, so she uh, held uh, David Jeffrey in high regard. I purchased one of his books, read the first couple chapters, and then a semester started. You guys know how that is, I'm sure. Uh, so, I mean, his book, uh, People of the Book, still sits on my shelf with a bookmark at the beginning of chapter three. Uh, but I will say that uh, the first two chapters are quite good indeed. <laughs> well, maybe you'll come back to it one day. I hope and to. I, ha- I hope to. Well, I, ha- I hate to cut all of the wonderful, you know, reunion chumminess short, um, but Lord have mercy. We're like 35 minutes in and we aren't even to our topic yet. Um, our, our listeners are blessed with patience. Otherwise, we wouldn't have listeners, but um, maybe we shouldn't push it. All right. <laughs> uh, this topic for this episode is uh well i've titled it the doctor is in because we now have a doctor amongst us um i am uh nathan gilmore uh for for those of you who weren't paying attention uh nathan gilmore defended his dissertation successfully and uh well got hooded and such right indeed indeed uh so amazing and we are envious. But, and, I, and, uh, I, and I'll remind our listeners that back, what, about a calendar year ago when we were starting our fifth season, uh, the topic came up, which of us is going to finish the dissertation first. I put my money on David Grubbs. Uh, you lost your money. Yeah, I did. I did. I, <laughs> how how I got far my are hood, you from so. finishing, Grubbsy? Um, I'm really, 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 really speaking in faith, uh, hoping to defend in the spring. Yeah, me too. I've got I've I've got one chapter left in the fir- in the first draft. Eight, 18 pages left now that we have a minimum page requirement because of somebody's efforts. <laughs> go go ahead, Michael. Give him that backstory because we didn't used to have a minimum page requirement at the University of Georgia English <laughs> Department, and then Nathan Gilmore turned in a hundred and fifty page. Dissertation and all of a no, sudden. No, this my... is not true. Two hundred five pages. Is it that high? <laughs> it is. It is. Two hundred fourteen, counting all the instruments. Well, yeah, stuff. including yeah. I mean, front matter and work cited, but I think two hundred five pages of text. At any rate, uh, the uh, the head of our department decided that from that point on we would have to have a minimum, and now my advisor tells me two hundred and twenty. <laughs> I'm looking at my whiteboard in my office where I keep a running total of all my chapters, and right now I have 202 pages. Yes. With, yeah. With, with about a th- uh, two-thirds of a chapter left to go. Well, li- listeners who haven't tilted this particular academic windmill, take note. 200 page- pages is too short, apparently. <laughs> but you know, uh, they're, they're 205 mean pages. That's all I'm saying. Mm. You you know, uh, everybody at school's making fun of me because I'm counting pages. And I said, look, I've been working on this thing for two and a half years. I no longer care about Mm -hmm. its quality. I care about getting it done. Yeah. Mm. 
uh, are we going to play that clip at the beginning of the episode when we talk about your dissertation, Michael? <laughs> well, since I'm the engineer, probably not. <laughs> you, can, you, can, All right. you, can, you can take it and play it at my dissertation defense. Okay. <laughs> should, should that ever take place. Oh, shoot. Awesome. Well, anyway, so the dissertation exists. It is awfully long, even if some are not, you know, impressed by uh, the the page space it occupies. Uh-huh. I was. I'm uh, seeing a Michaela Maroney picture coming. <laughs> I I don't get that. Oh, okay, um, U.S. gymnast. Anyway, it's an internet meme. Ah, uh, okay. I. That girl with the twisted up face, David. Yes. Yeah, Mich- I still. Yeah. Anyway, anyway go ahead. <laughs> sorry. And there, there's just no way we can slog through the dissertation in an episode, um, especially not at the rate we're going. Um, and so Nathan, I, I, I hate to, to toss this at you cause this is the, the explain the encyclopedia question. Right. Um, it, we can't talk through every possible move. So I guess, uh, just so that we have some sense of orientation as we go into this, mm-hmm. what's kind of your big central idea, and then your main stops on the route to the end? You know, not every move along the way, but absolutely, absolutely. I'll, I'll give you my writing the elevator version of my dissertation Sweet that, they, that they tell us <laughs> that, that that they tell us to formulate in grad school, just in case we're you know in the elevator with someone on the hiring committee. Uh, my dissertation makes the basic assertion that English Renaissance drama, and I focus specifically on Edmund Spencer, on William Shakespeare, and on John Milton, is not merely accepting or rejecting the theological trends of its day, uh, but those literary pieces are actually doing theology uh, in a way that is unlike the theological work being done in their period, and moreover in ways that anticipate some of the more interesting theology of the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Uh, So in some ways, my dissertation is a sort of introduction to contemporary Christian theology through literary texts that were published 400 years ago. Of all the Gilmore t- uh, topics in the world, I think you picked the Gilmoreist. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was my doctoral dissertation. Yeah. It it probably should bear my stamp, you know. Uh, yeah. So, going, you know, in approaching that topic, uh, I'll just give a, a brief summary of each chapter, and then you know you can ask me whatever follow ups you want, David. Uh, the first chapter, basically, I go through some of the primary texts influencing that period not on theology in general, but specifically on the question of uh, goodness, all right? Uh, Richard Weaver has written about this uh, in his book, Ideas Have Consequences, that in the period that we call the Renaissance, there is a battle of ideas going on mm. that, that has consequences, because that's the mm. name of his book, um, <laughs> between one faction that says that there is uh, such a thing as goodness, there is an intelligible content to that goodness and moreover that human beings can discourse reasonably about goodness and therefore order their lives in good manners. There's another trend within that, uh, within the period, uh, that says that goodness is something that is basically an arbitrary fiat of God. Uh, it is on some level unknowable and there's some degrees of difference to the extent that it is, knowable or not. 
Uh, but that at any rate, the arbitrary will of God is ultimately prior to goodness because goodness ain't goodness till God says it's goodness. All right. So those thank two you, big. Arkham. What now? I said thank you, Ockham. Yes, yes. Uh, so, I mean, those two trends I trace out in the first chapter as they are sort of doing battle uh, in the texts that are written and appropriated in the 16th and 17th centuries in England. Moving on from there, I go through the three big English authors that I take on. Uh, first, with Spencer, I make the argument that uh, he is fairly sanguine about the possibility that uh, classical sources can actually lead us into genuine goodness, uh, that they are not saving in their own respect theologically, uh, but that they can help us to, arg or to, to articulate pardon me, uh, what salvation might look like, and moreover, uh, that they can answer questions that the scriptural record, uh, infallible though it might be, doesn't take the time to address. So, for instance, when it comes to the governance of a state, uh, you want it to be governed by Christians who are saved by grace, uh, but when it comes to asking the questions of what good governance looks like, uh, you reach back to Plato and Aristotle. Moving on to Shakespeare, uh, what I argue there is that ultimately he refuses the category of virtuous pagan, uh, but that in doing so, he departs from Luther's and Calvin's uh, very inward-turned rejection of the same. So in other words, all three of them agree that it doesn't really make sense to talk about a genuinely virtuous pagan, uh, but that Shakespeare, because of the genre he's working in, refuses it for very different reasons. And we'll talk about that more at length a little bit later, David. Uh, finally, chapters four and five deal with, respectively, Milton's Paradise Lost and Milton's Paradise Regained. And in there, I take that idea that the narrative and the, and the, and the dramatic have their own modes of doing theology— and I demonstrate, like I said at the beginning, that Milton is doing theology, not just rejecting theology, as often people give accounts, uh, but he is actually doing theology, forming theology in ways that really hadn't been invented yet in the 17th century, uh, but that theologians like Stan Hauerwas, John Milbank, David Bentley Hart uh, eventually articulate within the lifetimes of the podcast hosts that you're listening to right now. Uh, and then finally, the last chapter, and this is probably the most fun to write, I'll admit, is a sort of manifesto arguing that uh, if we pay close attention to the form of English Renaissance literature and the actual form of some of the more interesting contemporary Christian theology, uh, they are asking very similar questions and therefore... Uh, a guy who went to seminary before he came to study Milton might be a good friend to the literary critics. So in that last chapter, I sort of went autobiographical. I was afraid that I would get swatted for that, but my committee loved it. Awesome. So that's the that's the five-minute version of my dissertation, David. Long, long elevator ride. <laughs> I, I, well, I mean, you know, maybe we're just in a really tall building. I, that's what we'll say. Have to be a pretty tall building. Yeah. <laughs> five, five minute elevator run. Nathan, did you run into any resistance from your committee on, on the religious content of your dissertation? Actually, I did not. If anything, and this is fascinating, uh, Fran Teague, my dissertation director and self-described cheerful pagan, uh, <laughs> the, the only real objection she had to the content was that uh, I was coming down too hard on some of the theologians that I needed to give them a more charitable reading. 
So I mean, uh, so Grant I, I, you know, and David Grubbs agree about something. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, it's one of those things where I anticipated it because you know, for the last thirty years, I've been hearing about you know these awful uh, secular university professors and how they hate theology and you know. Uh, when I actually got into the process of drafting and revising this puppy dog, they loved it. I mean, they just loved the fact that I was bringing these disciplines together, that I was getting, you know, texts that had been largely dominated by Foucaultian new historicism for the last 30 years or so, uh, bringing them back into sort of an Augustinian dialogue. Uh, now, it didn't hurt that, you know, I had Fran Teague, certainly, uh, who was just an, an immensely generous pagan she is a virtuous pagan in my book uh <laughs> self-described should go, should go to limbo there you go uh but then my other two readers were uh uh carolyn medine from the religion department at uga uh a roman catholic who does theology and literature studies and then uh none other than dogmas johnny evans uh, ah. who of course is himself a christian so he was just thrilled that someone was doing theology and literature in the english department <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you got his peanut butter and chocolate all mixed up together. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now did he play oh. the uh harmonica at your defense? No, I wish that he had, but he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Special request. Awesome. Well, I I want to dip dip our toes back into the theology before moving to the lit. Uh that was that was probably the section of the dissertation Nathan that it took me the longest to read because, um, well, apparently the contemporary theolo theology that's most interesting to you is the contemporary theology that's I'm least familiar with. Um, Michael, I'm I'm curious to get your impressions of that too because I know you know you and I are you know we both self-identify as Calvinists, but I think we're both coming also from very very different um, frameworks theologically uh, as well in in what we're familiar with. Um, also in light of the fact that you taught philosophy last year, I'm curious to get, uh, to, to think what, what, what you found interesting, uh, in that section. Well, I could certainly follow that introduction better than I would have been able to last year before I had to teach philosophy. So, I mean, it, it seemed to me that Nathan, what you were doing was really three things at once and I, I, they seemed to fit together pretty well to me. You seem to be arguing that theology and literature are not separated by any kind of qualitative gap that they are in some sense the same thing everything is story everything is also on some level propositional is that is that fair enough you, you yeah use, that, that's that's a good summary mm -hmm. use alistair mcintyre to suggest that sure um then then you do this kind of historical survey of what uh how uh philosophers and theologians conceived of free will because the the overall project seems to be very much about free will mm -hmm. and related to that is how they treated people outside of their tradition. And that's where right. you have your customary opportunity to praise uh, Erasmus at the expense of <laughs> poor Martin Luther. who uh, He does come off as the villain of the piece. I, I'm, I felt kind of sad for Luther. Well, and I'll admit that part of that, and yeah, that's that, that's actually the part that Frantique had me toned down. So what you guys are getting is the, that was toned down. <laughs> yeah, this this is the kinder, gentler version that you guys read. <laughs> uh, but I mean, because I've become sort of a disciple of Richard Weaver, uh, I mean, I really did see in Luther's "On the Bondage of the Will" 
some of the things that he says have, you know, are the roots of a lot of bad developments in the 20th century in Luther's treatise. Now, am I reading Weaver back into Luther? You betcha. But, but that's, um, that's legitimate too, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, if we, if we believe that you're allowed to have conversations across ages, there's nothing wrong with re- re- reading uh, Weaver back into Luther. And I share some of your distaste for Luther's attitude in that treatise. I mean, I, I think you're right that Erasmus is much more favorable to, to uh, non-Christians and that's, that's a good thing. Right, right. But what was interesting as the dissertation developed is I, I initially thought that I was going to write this dissertation about how, you know, Spencer and Shakespeare are basically Erasmians. But what I eventually discovered, and it was largely an interaction with David Bentley Hart, uh, is that they are actually doing something qualitatively different from what even Erasmus was doing. And, you know, that's that's really where the dissertation got fascinating for me, thinking through what kind of theology they're doing and how it departs from that entire bondage of the will, freedom of the will dispute. So who did I need to read in order to better understand your introduction? <laughs> uh, well, first of all, I mean, I you know, I, I'm, I'm surprised you didn't go where my committee went and asked, you know, why in the world does Augustine come before Plato? Oh, you addressed uh, <laughs> that directly. Oh, I that, do, I do. That actually made good sense to me. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I, and you know, I, I, was, I sort of I treated them yeah. in the order of their influence as I imagined it in 16th and 17th century England. So in other words, I imagined a basically Augustinian starting point into which Aristotle enters, you know, in the 14th century, and then Occam follows up from that, and then Plato sort of makes his Renaissance Italian comeback and actually comes as a new kid on the block to challenge the Occamist status quo, if you will. So, I mean, it, it was a fun, you know, timeline-bending exercise. Uh, those of you who remember when I taught English 2310 at UGA, uh, I started with Restoration Comedy and worked my way backwards to Beowulf. So, I am a person who loves to bend timelines. <laughs> uh, awesome. <laughs> But, I mean, as far as the contemporary theologians, David, I mean, I am, uh, in this dissertation, I definitely interacted with sort of four big ones, uh, and I tried to pull them from a spectrum of contemporary Christian traditions. So I used the Methodist Stan Hauerwas, uh, I used the Catholic George Lindbeck, I used the Anglo-Catholic John Milbank, and I used the Eastern Orthodox David Bentley Hart, uh, to demonstrate that this isn't, you know... Uh, exclusively a Roman Catholic or a, you know, uh, mainline Protestant thing, but this is something that can extend across a lot of contemporary theological conversations. Mm. I was uh, I was thinking of another theologian that uh, that actually you could uh, might might have even been able to thrown in the hopper. Have you ever read any Kevin Van Hooser? No, I haven't. I he's he's one that I've always that I've said for some time now that I should read, but I haven't. Well, I I got about halfway through his re-mythologizing uh, Christianity uh-huh. um, before I had to return it because of interlibrary loan. But uh, <laughs> he really he really strikes me as a, a a fairly conservative a fairly conservative Calvinist who's trying to speak Hauerwasian. Oh, fun. Um, he yeah he. It, he he talks an awful lot about theory of drama and literature in making sense of okay. and sort of conceptualizing yeah. theology and divine and human action. Right. And of course, Hauerwas's book, Performing the Faith, was absolutely a cornerstone for the way that I 
tried to think about Paradise Regained and how Milton shapes the idea of Christ. So yeah, yeah, I mean, that sounds like it'd be right up my alley. So I'll have to take a look, David. Add anyway. this to my list of books I should read. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a big one though, and it costs like over a hundred bucks. So yeah, oh, interlibrary inter 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 loan. Inter here we come. Yeah, interlibrary loan. Yeah. <laughs> then you, then awesome. you head over to the copy machine. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll go ahead and admit that I'm really torn on what to focus on now. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's so many interesting things. You know, we we love Spencer. We devoted a whole episode to him, and he's he's shown up since. Obviously, we love Milton. He's he shows up perennially, almost as much as Dante, I think. Um, so I went with Shakespeare because I think. Ironically, relatively, I think he's gotten less coverage um, in in our episodes overall than those other two. So I'd like to go back a bit to Shakespeare's Romans. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my impression of that chapter is that Shakespeare can't write a, a righteous pagan, and from your synopsis, apparently, uh, apparently, I, I got the right one. Um, <laughs> but I'm interested in kind of uh, kind of extending that because there. Are, you know there are other other pagans in Shakespeare's work that mm -hmm. aren't uh, aren't in Julius Caesar or right. oh sure sure Mark Antony. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, what about kind of the Greek pagans in Midsummer Night's Dream or maybe the Caliban in The Tempest? I mean, can, right, right, do you and see I anything there? Uh, not necessarily, and I think that you know the difference between tragedy and comedy certainly has to play into that. You know, I mean, okay. uh, you know. Uh, when when Shakespeare is writing his tragedies, he's like Marlowe. When he's writing his tragedies, he's like Robert Herrick. So I mean, it's you know, it's it's one of those things where you know, as long as there are young lovers to get together, Shakespeare all of a sudden gets a lot more optimistic about human existence. You mean when he's uh, writing his comedies, he's like Herrick? Because you said tragedies for both of them, and I'm not sure. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I meant comedies for Herrick. I'm sorry. Yeah, I misspoke. Gotcha. I misspoke. Uh, so yeah, I mean, as long as there are young lovers who might get together, uh, you know, I mean. <laughs> he suddenly becomes very optimistic about humanity, no matter where humanity is. Uh, so yeah, you're absolutely right that, I mean, this is not a universal claim about his uh, treatment of human beings outside of Christian confession. Uh, and, you know, mainly, you know, I was focusing on those Roman tragedies because, I mean, they are the choice exemplars that theologians of the period go to when they try to talk about virtuous pagans they they talk mm -hmm. relatively little about the greeks and almost none at all about egyptians babylonians uh any sort of levantine pagans it's almost always the romans uh so i mean i wanted to go to those plays and i i i, I like i said i set out with this idea that i was going to say you know uh you know milton ends up being a calvinist but you know Shakespeare and Spencer are Erasmian. What I discovered instead as I read and as I studied and as I thought was that Shakespeare also refuses the possibility of those old Romans, the old Roman luminaries being virtuous genuinely. But because he is working in a dramatic mode, uh, ultimately he can't make the Calvinist move of saying they might be entirely virtuous by appearance but internally they might be wrongly ordered because, of course, on stage uh, you can't see inside. Mm. And in a narrative, yeah, you can do a little bit more, but still the course of the interior life is always an, a textual course. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and really, this is where David Bentley Hart becomes extremely useful because one of his theological moves in his book, uh, The Beauty of the Infinite, uh, is that he says that what we think of as inter- interiority uh, is also a textual reality. You know, he's borrowing from sort of that postmodern Derridean idea of um, pan-textuality. Uh, but he says that, you know, the textuality of the interior life is folded in on itself uh, so that it is still always in contact with and always uh, formed by and always shaping the text that we share in common as human beings, uh, but that what we think of as our interior life is still always text. Uh, it's always related to other parts of itself. It's always related to phenomena uh, that are not part of that folded in textuality. So using that theory, I kind of went to uh, not only the asides that characters make in uh, Julius Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra, uh, but also to their interactions with other characters. And I said, all right, you know, this is definitely not a picture of a virtuous pagan. You know, Brutus, uh, he's really trying hard to desire good things, but ultimately in his asides, he is incapable of desiring forgiveness. And I thought that was fascinating. And of course, before that, I reached back to Shakespeare's poem, The Rape of Lucrece, and demonstrated, I think, and you guys can tell me if I did it well or not, uh, that, you know, what Lucrece desires uh after she is raped by tarquin uh has basically distorted echoes of scripture uh so that you know her heart in some sense uh has eternity within it to misappropriate and misquote ecclesiastes uh (laughs) but that ultimately because she is not in christ her desires cannot be for reconciliation but only for revenge And likewise, when Brutus is attempting to do moral reasoning about how he should confront Caesar and Antony, uh, he is ultimately incapable of imagining scenarios in which genuine peace results. And again, I think that that mode of doing theology uh, preserves that sense that all of interiority is still textual, but ultimately you can't call that sort of interiority virtuous. So, I mean, it, it's one of those things where I set out thinking one thing about Shakespeare, but the more that I tried to look at him theologically, the more I came to realize that this is an entirely different sort of refusal of the virtuous pagan as a category. Mm. Well, I, I, I was uh, I, I, I was I was pretty impressed by the uh, the, the the work with Rape Lucrece. I, I that 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 poem has interested me ever since I've, I I first encountered it and you know tracing the you know the christian edging of over into you know anti uh anti-christ kind of uh notions in her speeches that was that was really interesting to me well and what's great is i mean it's not a sheerly you know pagans can only think evil thoughts but it also refuses the idea that pagans can desire the genuine good mm. so in other words i mean her urges take the form of psalms at first, but then they twist. Mm-hmm. And I, I, yeah. and I just found that fascinating once I started to see that pattern. The, the twist always came. Yeah, yeah. This whole conversation is beyond me because I've never read uh, *Rape of Lucrece*. Oh, okay. <laughs> so if you're wondering why I'm not saying anything, that's why I don't have anything productive to add to the conversation. All right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> that surprises that that surprises me actually. But it but 
it, it is. Re- it's it's a really really interesting poem, Michael. Um, it well, it and Venus and Adonis are really interesting next to each other. Do Do you guys tend to see Shakespeare as a uh, a theological author? I mean, because that's a controversial position. Oh sure, sure, and and you know I I tend to, uh, but I tend to see him as a fairly complex thinker who again is doing things that anticipate theology more than echo theology. Mm. And I don't have a problem with it too, Michael, because he's, he's also a hot topic writer. Um, right. You know, he's, he's interested in writing about things that other people are interested in watching plays about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think it's, you know, what, what, however you value theology, I think it's pretty indubitable that, you know, folks in Renaissance England kind of had, you know, a vested interest in paying attention to those things. Well, it didn't, it didn't help that weren't there laws against speaking directly about religion on the stage or some aspects of religion? You can tell I'm not a Renaissance person. Yeah, yeah, and and I haven't taught Renaissance literature since I arrived at Emmanuel, so I'm a little bit rusty on this question. Uh, but yes, I mean there were laws that you could not represent um, the acts of Christian worship, so you couldn't have a stage Eucharist. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and and you'll also find uh, in a lot of uh, a lot a lot of uh, Shakespeare invocations of Jove, where yes, there yes. would right. be invocations of the Christian God. Uh, probably to dodge that that same kind of issue, right? Right, because there were yeah, there was also a law that you know uh, speaking the word God on stage was taking the Lord's name in vain. So yeah, they went to Jove. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, because it it, yeah. it strikes me that that Shakespeare is much less explicitly religious than other writers of the 17th century. But once you start looking for it, especially if you know a little bit of the historical circumstance, it becomes right. And especially in the tragedies, again, I mean, if you're looking at the comedies, which are not my strong suit with Shakespeare, you know, I mean, they are a lot more uh, optimistic about humanity, as as comedies tend to be. <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, but, I mean, they tend to be, but then you look at a Ben Johnson City comedy, I mean, that's a pretty bleak view of humanity, although he plays mm. it for laughs. <laughs> right, right. He's the Coen brothers. Yeah, that's not a bad way to put it. Yeah. 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 You, you you don't really like humans that much in, in Ben Johnson comedies all the time, but they're still funny. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's why, I mean, people tend to label Ben Johnson as proto satire, whereas Shakespeare is, you know, decidedly romantic comedy. You know, um, like I said, I mean, if there's a pair of young lovers to get together, uh, Shakespeare's going to all of a sudden get very rosy about humanity. Romeo and Juliet accepted, I realize. <laughs> yeah, but that wasn't a comedy. Right, right. <laughs> um, in fact, ooh, it's almost kind of more tragic because it's a comedy that breaks. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Just like Mids- uh, not Midsummer, but uh, Much Ado About Nothing is a tragedy that turns up at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, he, yeah, he liked to play with those genres, that's for sure. Also, he he oh. also liked to make fart jokes. Yes, oh. he did. Yes, he did. Among other jokes that wouldn't fly at Emmanuel College. <laughs> you know, uh, Crown put on Midsummer Night's Dream last year, and I said, "Really? <laughs> mm-hmm. School is conservative. You're you're not you're not worried about uh, 
you're not worried about all the sex jokes and you know nobody caught them because people assume old equals chaste right right yeah that's a mistake <laughs> well uh, we, we've already kind of been uh t- talking around this um but you know hey we're we, we call ourselves christian humanists and this podcast is the stage in which we act that role do you see what i did there nathan i see that i see that yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm talking about roles and such um so i when it, when i was reading your your dissertation nathan i you know, I, w- I was impressed by the way that you were playing this that that the Christian humanist role in that venue, and I'm really mm-hmm. pleased that you know they that your uh, advisors permitted slash applauded uh, that performance. Um, uh, Michael, uh, you know, I, I you know, I, you, you're probably noticing the same kinds of things. Um, you know, what it, what in the Christian humanist vein do you think that this dissertation does well. I I mentioned this earlier, but I really love Nathan's refusal to draw bold lines between disciplines. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, the breadth of it, the fact that it's reaching back to Plato and forward, I guess, all the way to John Milbank or Hauerwas or whoever you want to put last in line, mm-hmm. and it's it's putting them in conversation with each other. I think that's very much what we try to do on this program. Um. Those were the two the two main things I noticed. We've already talked about them, so I feel once again that I don't have much to contribute. <laughs> but this episode's not about me, is it? Well, I I, I kept kind of expecting, um, particularly during the Paradise Regained chapter, mm-hmm. you know, after it followed all of the others, um, I kind I I kind of expected the next chapter to be an altar call. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, can you imagine? I, I bet Teague wouldn't have liked that as much. <laughs> every I mean, every head bowed, every eye closed. Nobody looked yeah, around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna play as you. Uh, uh, I surrender all until somebody walks. Well, like um, I said, I mean, they all uh, noticed that the last chapter was a manifesto of sorts. But like I said, they all loved it. So, yeah. Well, uh, I, I I really like the way you structured that. I really like, you know, the the uh, the way you were able to set up a scholarly venue in which you could set up and say, "This is the Christian gospel. This uh-huh. is how it touches, and this is how it's relevant in this particular literary work. Here's how understanding what Christianity looks like from the inside helps you understand this text." Right. You know, <laughs> yeah, I saw what you did there. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, I mean, I, I can't say that I'm doing exactly the same thing because, you know, the, the, the theological content of my dissertation is mostly occupied with the first few chapters of Genesis. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll confess that, you know, I, I, I'd like to be able to have similar kinds of moments in my dissertation. Um, and I hope they're permitted to stay there. Um, I mean, what about you, Michael? Is this is this something that's that's part of your project? Kind of. I uh, I do have an entire chapter arguing that the uh, kind of atheist agnostic defenders of Christianity are are not really helping anything, and and I use J.D. Salinger as a counter to them. I'm I'm that's the chapter I'm most worried they're going to say this is, you know untenable (laughs) (laughs) 
this is unapologetically confessional. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that, that's where I go off onto a little bit of a rant myself, a little bit of a manifesto. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it's it's weird. Um, when I was writing mine in Florida and in oh, I never wrote, I, I didn't write any of it in Athens. I worried that I was being too explicitly theological, and now that I'm surrounded by that atmosphere, I don't even worry about it anymore, which means maybe mm-hmm. I should be worrying about it more than I am. <laughs> I mean, nobody on my committee, as far as I know, is a Christian. My my uh, major professor is Jewish, and, and so, so I mean, we've, we've had conversations about that, and, and uh, we're kind of on the same page about a lot of things, so I'm not anticipating any pushback from him, but I, I don't know about the other two guys. I'm interested to see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not quite as explicitly theological as Nathan is, but uh, I do quite a bit of it. I, I open one chapter with a lengthy discussion of Eros and Agape, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the difference between the Greek and Christian worldviews and things like that. So we'll see how it goes. I don't know. Please tell me you don't do stupid reductionism when you do that. <laughs> Uh, I, I I just I just say you see a general move in Christianity from eros to agape. Okay, that I can deal with. <laughs> so, some of the books I've had to review lately, I when I whenever I hear the Greek versus the Christian worldview, I start to break out in hives. No, no, it's it's nothing. I mean, I talk that eros doesn't just mean sexuality. I talk about Plato's view. Oh, of eros good, good, and, good, excellent, yeah, excellent. Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, I did my best. All right. <laughs> But a uh, couple interesting points about this, David. I one, and this this floored me. I mean, this blew my mind a little bit. But during the dissertation defense, uh, Frantique was, uh, you know, talking about the the breadth that you were just talking about. The fact that I want to talk about Plato and a 21st century Eastern Orthodox theologian and John Milton, all in one swoop. Uh, and she said, you know, this reminds me of what uh, you do on that Christian Humanist podcast you do. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, how many episodes have you listened to? that?" <laughs> but she wouldn't say. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, honestly, you know, uh, that is one of the things where, you know, uh, Michael pointed out in our when we were doing pre-show prep that I had, you know, tipped my hat to you two in the acknowledgments section. Uh, but I mean, it really was one of those things where, you know, I defended the dissertation after two and a half years of this podcast. And I have to think that the moves that we make when we do this show were definitely shaping the way that I approach that dissertation. So, I mean, it, it's definitely, you know, uh, I could probably call it the CHD, uh, <laughs> you know, without stretching the truth does, very much at all. Does that mean it'll cover for ours as well? <laughs> Yeah, won't you ask your uh, directors about that? See how it works. <laughs> it was point oh one episode. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Well, I was going to kind of round things out with uh, any stories you wanted to tell about, you know, kind of the process of writing and particularly the process of defending it. But you're yes, kind of tell already us, tell us that kind of it's already not going to be so bad, please. <laughs> Well, first of all, I mean, the writing it, uh, I'm going to echo what uh, Michael Farmer said in our last May episode. Uh, it is much easier to write a dissertation before you are a professor. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you think you're busy as a grad student, and I know this this stretches back to every stage of life. You 21-year-old undergrad, you think you're busy, you don't know nothing. Uh, but 
I mean, when I went over to Emmanuel and I was, you know, commuting over to UGA to take rhetoric classes, uh, when I was trying to get the QEP done, I mean, it stalled out for a good year and a half, or I should say a bad year and a half. Uh, so, I mean, it's one of those things where whenever people ask, you know, should I go on the job market while I'm still working on the dissertation? No. I'm always torn because I love my job. I'm glad I grabbed it while the grabbing was good. Uh, but it made it tougher. I can't lie. So, uh, now as far as the defense itself, I mean, the, the writing, the dissertation, I mean, I, every writer has a different personality with that respect. You know, I mean, some people send every little 10 page spurt to their director to say, is this all right? Is this all right? Uh, my approach was to drop entirely off the radar for about two calendar years and then drop 180 pages on Frantique. And that's, so that's I, also what I've done. <laughs> um, so, and, you know, she still jokes with me about it, you know, uh, because she has had some, you know, step-by-step writers. She says, you know, Gilmore, you waited until, you know, the week before Christmas break and said, here you go, read this. <laughs> I want to defend in February. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. I said, you know. I understand that I'm dropping this on you with short notice. Could we defend maybe in late March, early April? Uh, she said, I've got no time to read right now. I've got papers to grade. Let me take a look at it. Then mid-December when she had her grades uploaded, she shoots me an email. She says, there's no major changes to make to this. Let's schedule a mid-February defense so oh, the committee has time. Like I said, this was the cheerful pagan who said, you know, this theological treatise uh, doesn't need very much tweaking, so let's rock and roll with it. Nathan, do you get the sense that when you already have a job, they kind of shuffle you through? Um, Please tell that... me that when you have a job, they kind of shuffle you through. <laughs> I, I wish that were the case, Michael, but I've had colleagues uh, who have had to write two-thirds of their dissertation while teaching as assistant professors. <sighs> So, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I've said it before, listeners, and I will assert it once again. I am Forrest Gumping it through this, it, through this human existence. Um, you know, I dropped a 200-page document on my cheerful pagan director, and she said, let's defend it in six weeks. Did, did you still have to consider that maybe because you dropped so much on her at once, she didn't actually read it? Uh, the only reason I would say that that's probably not true is that she had made comments on every page of it for stylistic matters. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I had work to do. Don't, don't get me wrong. But as far as the research and the central argument, she wanted to rock and roll with it. You also hate him for this, don't you, David? (laughs) No. Well, I, I, I don't hate him because... Yeah, from from the very beginning, we we have acknowledged Nathan for two qualities: uh, sprezzatura and serendipity. So, you know, you uh, you know, whom the gods love, you can't hate them. They're just you know, that's just how it turned out. You know. So, in other words, I I, I am at once uh, James Bond and Forrest Gump. Is that way? Yeah, yeah, kind of. <laughs> All right. Which that's uh, that's a lethal that's a lethal combination. Yeah, it really is. It really oh, is. Uh, but I mean, the defense I mean was more of a party than a combat. And I've heard that is generally true. Yeah, I mean, I went in there, you know, ready. I'm like, okay, here's where they're gonna hit me. Here's where they're gonna hit me. Here's where they're gonna hit me. Uh, it only lasted an hour and ten minutes, and 
you know, it was largely a conversation about, okay, I'd like to, to, to expand what you do in the last chapter into a lengthy introduction so that you can publish this as a book for beginning seminarians. You know, nice. I mean, it, it was largely a conversation about how we're going to turn this into a book. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, there was one question about the content of the dissertation uh, from Frantig. Uh, she had actually asked me about it over email about a month before, so I'd had time to think about it. So, I mean, you know, the defense was nothing. I mean, honestly, by the time I got done with it, you know, uh, it was on Valentine's Day, so uh, Jonathan Evans went off to take his wife out to dinner. Uh, Carolyn Medine was down with a nasty cold, which I'm glad that she actually came to the defense. Uh, so she went home to rest. So, I mean, basically, Fran Teague and I went for coffee after the defense. And, um, you know, of course, everyone who she knew on campus, she was stopping and introducing me as Dr. Gilmore to, oh, that's you so know, sweet. oh, it, it was, and it was a rite of passage because it didn't feel like I had defended anything. So, I mean, that was her way of convincing me that I was now a doctor. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, uh, the defense in my case, again, remember Forrest Gumping it through life. Uh, <laughs> it was, it was a breeze. So, <laughs> well, I know I know where I'm going after my defense. I'm going to the Taco Shack and probably have a burrito because that's where Doctor Evans and I hang out. Oh, very good, very good. Yeah, sorry, Taco if, Taco Stand, Taco Stand. I don't know if uh, McKnight will take me anywhere. It makes me well, kind of and, sad. And, and actually, <laughs> And I mean, like I said, Fran Teague, I mean, is my living proof that there are virtuous pagans. Uh, but, I mean, after graduation in May, she took me and Mary and Micah out for a very, very nice Italian lunch. Uh, and then I had to go back to the office for the afternoon because I had work to do on QEP. Uh, and then in July, she actually took Mary and me and uh, Lisa and Michael Bolding uh, out for a very expensive supper. So, I mean, we've been celebrating for seven months, the completion of my dissertation. So, <laughs> well. I mean, it, it, it's one of those things where, again, I mean, I, I can't say enough good things about Fran Teague. Uh, she really has been uh, my Virgil uh, in this in you this whole dissertation process. You certainly never hear anybody say anything bad about her. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, she is, uh, I mean, one of, like I said, I mean, she's she's a self-described pagan, so I can call her this. Uh, she is one of my prime 21st century evidences for virtuous pagans. <laughs> you know, she's also one of the very, very few faculty at the University of Georgia whom I never had. I never had any one of her classes, but I miss her. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. You're also married to a renaissancer, so. <laughs> no, that does influence things. <laughs> you know, I want to say one other thing about the difference between you and me, Nathan. And I noticed this when we were both published in that Imaginatio Eratio. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're a little wordier than I am. <laughs> because <laughs> your, your acknowledgement section set, uh, stretches over what, four pages or is it just three? Uh, three pages, yeah. I wrote mine uh, the other day, 172 words. <laughs> <laughs> Two, two, uh, two, two, uh, three words. Thanks for nothing. No. <laughs> ouch! 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 I'll, 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 I'll write a haiku, Michael. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have to beat me. Have you written your acknowledgments <laughs> yet, David? 
No, I haven't. I did I it because um, I, I did it because I figured out who I wanted to dedicate it to, and I, I figured once I started doing that, I may as well just go ahead and finish the acknowledgments. I wasn't going to do it until I finished, but right, right, yeah. and yeah, and I mean, I did want to make my acknowledgments sort of a narrative of my intellectual career. I'll admit, you know, uh, because I have been shaped at every step along the way by various people. So I mean, I wanted to include all the way back in the mid '90s with my humanities major friends all the way up to the Christian Humanist podcast and, you know, a couple of faculty members at Emanuel who have been especially helpful talking through the project. So, yeah, I mean, mine was lengthy. I'll grant that. <laughs> well, and your dissertation is a text that isn't fully intelligible outside of its narrative context. Well, sure, true. sure. <laughs> um, well, it's after 8 o'clock here, after 9 o'clock in Georgia. Mm-hmm. <sighs> As fun as this is, I think we have to wrap things up. Um, who's on tap for next week? Uh, I'm actually taking next week because we're recording earlier in the week than usual. Uh, ah. Because I, I have to uh, brag on my wife here. She is one of the three finalists for Teacher of the Year at Decula Middle School. Hooray! Uh, Yay! So, I mean, you know, very, very pleased about that. And the banquet where they announce the winner is during our normal recording time. So we're moving it earlier in the week. Uh, and th- this episode actually goes out to my seven-year-old son, Micah. We're talking about pirates. Arr. That, 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 that's, that's cool about your wife, Nathan. We, we, need, we, we do need to, uh, one of these days, get around to that young adult lit episode. Oh, absolutely. I don't know if we'll ever talk her into coming on the show, but we will try. Well, well, we'll, 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 we'll try. Does she listen and to I, the show, Nathan? Nope. <laughs> 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 no, as far as she, con- she as far as she is concerned, this is my little hobby, and that's how she prefers to keep it. You're like building a model train in the basement. <laughs> yeah, except, I really am. I really am. I mean, when when on occasion she is in the building when I'm recording, she always mocks the fact that I have a, a separate radio voice. Yeah, <laughs> that that's really really funny. And I think her little model train is approaching Lionel scale. So yeah, there you yeah. go. There you go. <laughs> I also and I and uh, all all joking about my gigantic ego aside, I I try not to toot my own horn, but I do want to just mention the fact that back in May at Emmanuel's graduation, I did win the uh, Lee and Lucille Fireball Faculty Award at Emmanuel, and the only reason I want to mention it is because I mean this is pretty much the plateau of my career. I've <laughs> I've pretty much hit my peak at age thirty five, so. Uh, I want to make a brief mention of it. (laughs) You won something called the Fireball Award? Yes, F-I-R-E-B-A-U-G-H. Yeah, you get it by... Yes, yes. I put an L on the end of it. I probably (laughs) did when I said it, but... uh, So did I. I I assumed you got it by running your head up in the bottom of some kind of block and knocking this fiery flower out the top. No, 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 no. I... Uh, no, I was elected by the faculty of Emmanuel College as the outstanding faculty member last year. So, I mean, very high honor. Congratulations. Uh, you know, like I said, it's something that, you know, uh, for me is, I mean, the height of my professional achievements. So, I mean, I, I did want to mention it in passing and, you know, just once again tip my hat in gratitude to the faculty of Emmanuel College for choosing me, uh, whether I deserved it or not. <laughs> Well, congratulations. That's, well, thank you, that's, thank you. Yeah, a very, a very nice year, and probably, probably very gratifying because you've, you've, you've worked really hard. 
I have. <laughs> <laughs> well, we also work very, very hard, Michael, and I imagine probably need to go to work at some point. Today. Yes. If I have um, well, who knows? Maybe we'll get Fireball Award 2s. <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that could happen. All right. In the meanwhile. Fireball Islands. <laughs> wow. So, in the meanwhile, um, if uh, any any questions or any comments about the dissertation, is there any way that people can get access to that, Nathan? Well, actually, Frantique has told me to troll the internet and make sure no one has posted it uh, because oh. she still wants me to turn this into a book for beginning seminarians. So, right now, there is no access to it. Uh, you guys have two of the only digital copies out there. Uh, well, I, I burned it, so so. so yeah. And I will sell mine to the highest bidder. Yeah, there you go. So, <laughs> you know, right now I'm I'm actually working on a different intellectual project altogether, and I probably will be for a couple years. But after that, I probably will revisit this thing and turn it into a book. So, unfortunately, I, I can't give it to our listeners. Sorry, listeners. I guess you'll just have to wait until it's you know, between two hardcovers. There you go. All right. Well, um, any comments, uh, any questions, uh, forward to uh, the Christian Humanist at gmail.com. You can leave at comment, as comments on the show notes on our blog, ChristianHumanist.org. Uh, or you could just post them on our Facebook wall. Uh, our, our Facebook page is the Christian Humanist Podcast. Like us there, post things. Post things on our wall, post help, helpful links, you know, steer us towards things that you think we'd be interested in seeing or mm-hmm. um, that each other would be interested in seeing. You know, I, I, it's, it's, it's fun to see. Uh, well, more than fun. It's, it's, it's exciting to see social media creating these kinds of nodes of community around interest like uh, the Christian Humanist podcast. Mm-hmm. So keep, keep that thing going. In the meanwhile... Uh, have a splendid week, the most splendid of weeks. And uh, I'm David Grubbs uh, on behalf of Nathan Gilmore, on behalf of Michael Farmer, wishing you, uh, well, a grand week again and leaving you with good advice from Martin Luther to let your sin be strong, but let your faith be strong. Great gosh, you're mighty, my baby, she's tall.